All right, you may be seated. John chapter 1. So today we're going to finish uh, this prologue, this introduction to John's gospel um, about his declaration of who Christ is and establishing the glory of Christ before he begins to unveil uh, the reality of this um, in, uh, in story form, in narrative form of the things that Jesus did and said. So what I would like to do just by way of introduction this morning is I want to remind us of the significant things that we have already seen together and then I would and then we'll spend our time in verses 15 through 18. So look with me in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So very first thing John establishes is that Jesus is eternal. He is pre-existent, he is co-existent, he is self-existent as well, he is eternal. He was in the very beginning before there was matter. He also, we know this, that he is the word of God, that's in 1-1. Um, this Greek word is logos, the Greeks use this word to describe the mind and the reason that was behind the creation of the world. Now they were not Yahweh worshipers, they were not Jesus worshipers. So John comes along at the end of the first century, and he kind of captures this word and puts it into the context within Christianity and the church and says that Jesus is the word. He is the speaking of God. Look in verse 4 and 5 with me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now go to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the third thing that we see is that he is the or fourth thing, really. I didn't, in verse 3, he is the creator. We see that in verse 3, but the fourth thing is he is the source of life, and he is the source of light. There is no life but Christ. He's the only one that gives light to know what truth is and how to know God. He's also the only way to salvation. Look at 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. So he is the one who is the only way for salvation with God. He's the one who came to reveal the glory of God. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so He is the glory of God revealed in the incarnation. And then today we will see He is the unique expression of God who blesses and pours out grace to His children. So let's read the text for today. 15 through 18. So John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received, all of us, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God, though, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So we're going to talk today, finishing up this introduction in John's Gospel and verses 15 through 18. And we're going to see, and we just read there, is that John the Baptist speaks about the ranking of Jesus. Where does Jesus rank? In comparison to John, where does Jesus rank in comparison to the prophets? Where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What's the reality of this? In the fall, the word ranking happens all the time. If you're a college football fan, every Tuesday a ranking comes out about, okay, where does your team fit? Do they fit in the top 25? In the sports world today, you hear this all the time when you talk about whether it's whatever sports franchise it is, they talk about the Mount Rushmore of the Dallas Cowboys. Who would you carve in stone as the greatest of all time? Well, today I want to <clears throat> talk about the greatest one ever. There is none who compare with him. 
He is the eternal God. He is the Word of God. He is the mind of God. He is the one who revealed God to us. He is the great one. He is living. He is alive. No one can stop Him. Only in Him can we find life. Only in Him do we find salvation. Only in Him do we know what truth is. Only in Him do we know what God's heart is like. And so John finishes this up today, and he tells something that I believe is absolutely transformative for us today. And I think if you are wrestling with things on a consistent basis, if any of us are, including myself, I'm going to share some things with us today that have already been done for us in our lives. Already, we possess the opportunity to experience all of the fullness of God. We are not waiting for something to come. Now, there is more to come. But in this life here, we're not waiting for the special message to come. We need God. We need an angel to come. We need God. We need we need a new book. We need a, a new letter. No, we don't need that. We have already been given because of the fullness of God. We will establish this today. Everything that you and I need. So John establishes immediately in one through 18 of saying this to us in Christ. All the fullness of God is there and in him is everything that you and I need. And John also knows this he spent three years with jesus seeing the glory of jesus and teaching and healing and raising the dead and in the cross and the resurrection so look with me in verse 15 and let's deal with our first point this morning when we talk about the ranking of jesus where does jesus fit in the history of the world the first thing i want us to establish this morning is that jesus is greater than john the baptist and jesus is greater than all of the prophets. And so John the Baptist here, in case we're, so we don't get confused here, there's too many Johns here, two of them is too many in a sense, of can cause some confusion. So when it says in verse 15, John, he's not talking about the writer. John's not referring to himself. He's referring to the Baptist. And so John the Baptist bore witness about Christ. And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So I'd like to take us back to a verse. I want you to look with me. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 11 just for a moment, and then we'll come back to John chapter 1. I want to remind us of something that we looked at several weeks ago when we were first introduced to John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 11. So some messengers of John the Baptist have come to Christ. John has been put in prison. Um, He's going to be beheaded soon. Um, And he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question if he was the Christ. And so in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus speaks about John the Baptist, and this is what he says. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. You can go back to John 1, 1 now. So listen to this establishment of Jesus. Jesus says this, of all the people that have ever been born of woman, John the Baptist, in that day, 2,000 years ago, ranked at the top. You want to put the, what, who's the greatest man who ever lived pre-Christ, top of the list, Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, you would put John the Baptist. You mean greater than Abraham? Well, Jesus said, yeah, of those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is great. And then Jesus says this, but in this new age that's being ushered in, those who are least in the kingdom of God, they're greater than John. And here's the reality of this. John was great because he had the unique role of being the forerunner the proclaimer, the one who prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. Nobody had a greater role than that, than for John to go out in the wilderness near the Jordan River and begin to baptize and call people to repentance and to say, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming, and to prepare the way as he preached. But John wasn't going to live up until the cross. He's going to die soon, not long after Matthew 11 there 
And he will not live to see the cross. He will not live to see the resurrection. He will not, he will not be a part of this movement called the church. And so those who, are, who will be in the church, Jesus says, as great as John is, those who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than John. And, and that's confusing and, and, and amazing, but that's what the text says. So John wants to remind us, the author wants to remind us that John the Baptist is not greater than Jesus. Even though John the Baptist was incredibly great. Well, the scriptures bear this out as well. John was the last Old Testament prophet. And so, under this first point, Jesus is greater than all the prophets, including John the Baptist. Another thing is, all the prophets, did they write about themselves? Who did they write about? They wrote about Jesus, the one who was going to come. So on the day of the resurrection, Jesus spent his time, and we believe that Jesus spent quite a bit of his time as well with the apostles, telling them and teaching them all the things that were pointing to Jesus from the Old Testament. On the day of the resurrection, he walks to the town of Emmaus with two guys, and as he walks with them, he unfolds everything in the Psalms and the prophets about Jesus. Jesus later appears in the upper room on the day of the resurrection. What does he do with the, those gathered in the upper room? He spends that time revealing to them everything that's in the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets wrote about the coming of Jesus. So, Jesus says, John's great. He's not greater than me. Those least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist. The scriptures point out the prophets didn't write about themselves. The prophets wrote about the one who was going to come. So they're writing about one who's greater than them. You don't write about those that are lesser than you. You don't proclaim, give your life to those who are lesser than you. Give you proclamation and give your life to those that are greater. So, so Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than the prophets. For the prophets wrote about him. And then we come to verse 15. And we know that Jesus is greater because that's all John could do was say, he's greater, he's greater, he's greater than me, he's greater than me, he's greater than me. And so the writer, author, John, says John bore witness about him, writing about John the Baptist. And he, this is what John the Baptist did. He cried out, hey, I got something I want to tell you. I have something incredible to tell you. The one that I've been telling you about, he's coming, he's here, he's come, I've baptized him, he is present, he is here, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So the testimony of John the Baptist was to say this, Jesus is greater than me, I am less, he is greater. And so The author, John, is establishing, likely, possibly still, at the end of the first century, is that there were people who were following John the Baptist and not following Jesus. And so, John, the author, is saying, listen, John the Baptist didn't make a big deal about him. John the Baptist, all that he could say was, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. That's the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so, so he's establishing, reminding, telling you and I this morning Jesus is not like the prophets. He is the greatest prophetic voice. He is the greatest prophet. He is is God. He's not a man. And so the author is establishing through the testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. All of them. Now I think this tells us, I think, a couple of unique things. And one is simply this. 115 reveals to us that we should never exaggerate the value of people in our lives, no matter how holy they are, no matter how awesome and how much they love God to a place that they do not need to be. No matter how righteous they are, no matter how well they speak, etc. Our thoughts must always be centered on Christ. So the words we use about Jesus, the words we use about people, the words we use about righteousness and all those things in the kingdom they really matter for we must hold people in the right place and christ must be preeminent always in everything 
John the Baptist, this just was never an issue for him. He never elevated himself to a place that he did not need to. He knew why he came, and he embraced it fully. And so, so the author says, John bore witness about him. John was a messenger proclaiming the coming of Christ. And this is exactly what a bi- biblical witness does. Doesn't point to themselves, but points away from themselves and points to the one who is the greater. And John came and he pointed saying, he's coming, he's coming, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, this is the activity of a biblical witness pointing to the salvation that is only found in him who is life and who gives light to people. Now there are some claims in Western Western Christianity, if you will listen closely with a discerning ear, who claim to have solutions to people's problems and issues but if you will listen carefully what is proclaimed is this it is jesus plus a tape series it is jesus plus a workbook or a video series it is jesus plus a seminar it is jesus plus a song it is jesus plus a ministry philosophy it is jesus plus this certain pastor and i believe far too many ministries far too many ministers don't see that they are actually representing themselves and Jesus as the solution. And I just want to remind us this morning, as silly as it may sound, that we would drift that way, that there is only one solution to every issue in our lives. And you need to hear this, and I ain't it. John MacArthur is not it. John Piper is not it. Martin Luther was not it. John the Baptist was not it. Abraham was not it. There is one solution to the heart condition that you and I have, and it is him who took on flesh to die for us. So I I just want to remind you and I this morning, it is not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus water baptism. It is not Jesus plus church membership. It is Jesus Christ alone. And that's all that John the Baptist did. I'm not great. He's great. And I think those in my profession, in what I do, in my calling, need to be really, really, really careful. Because we know, I know, I've read it, I see it, I, I've read the text. I know how much grace we have been given. I know, I know what God has done for us. And so I've got to always remind myself when my flesh says, boy, great sermon today and I want to feel good about myself. No, I need to be really, really careful. And that goes for all of us. If you're successful in your business and you love God, God is blessing that. You're not blessing that. It's Him at work in us that brings the blessing. And we ought to know better than to draw attention to ourselves and to say, we're the ones who've made this happen. No, He makes things happen. And John the Baptist, he had a firm grip on this. And everything in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. John bore witness about him. John cried out, this was he. Look at all the pointing to Jesus. Of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. He was before me. And so all John could do was say, I'm not it. He's it. And he knew that the great hope in his life was not to keep his ministry going. We'll come to John 3, and John will, will say, I must decrease, he must increase. John knew his ministry, powerful, powerful ministry. Thousands upon thousands of people were going up to be baptized. And John was like, okay, that's cool. All right, God, I came for this reason. I have to decrease. He has to increase. So John's ministry pointed to salvation in Christ. Jesus' life and ministry brought salvation. And so Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than all the prophets. And so he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's not speaking about earth time. He's speaking about eternal time. John the Baptist was actually six months older than Jesus. They were cousins. So when he talks about he who is before me, ranks before me, he's not, he's not talking about that, even though that's true. 
He's talking eternal time. This one is before me. This one actually created me. He's the creator, and he made me. But I'm six months older than him physically. Try that on your brain for a little bit. See if you can figure that out. So John's establishing Jesus is greater. Secondly, I want to talk about the great depth of our God. Look at the first part of verse 16. Three words. From his fullness. From his. What does his mean there? That's a question I'm asking you. Does that mean us? Does that mean his, Rob, Alverson, from his? No. From his fullness. From God's fullness. This is not from our works. It's not from our effort. It's not from our goodness. Everything is from Him. So from His fullness, the first part of verse 16, we are not the source of anything. And whatever self-will, whatever, okay, I'm just going to, my mind, I'm just going to get my mind and, and I'm going I'm to muster through this, I'm going to push through this. You can do that for a little bit and then what happens? We crash. We don't have enough power. We're not the source of anything. He is. He sustains. So from his fullness. So we have to ask the question, fullness of what? Well, we talked about it last week. He is 100% God in the incarnation. Christ came. He's in a human body. He's 100% God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's God in a human body. He's 100% God within this container called humanity. And yet he is the eternal one. So he's 100% God. He is 100% man. And we also know from last week at the end of verse 14, he is full of something. He is full of something called grace and truth. So watch, Jesus is full of of everything that God is. If there's anything that God is, Jesus is full of it. He's not 78% of it. He's not 63%. He is 100% every moment, every day, for all of eternity, before anything began, right now in this moment, all of the future. He is 100% the fullness of God. And so in Christ... The complete fullness of love, of power, of wisdom. He is fully, the fully inexhaustible God, resource, supply, giver, lover, forgiver. He is everything in life that you and I would ever need. There's not a moment of our lives where something just out of the blue just comes around the corner. It devastates us. There's not anything that can come that he's not capable of in that moment, in that surprise of taking care of it and meeting the need. See, in Jesus, John is saying, from his fullness, the broken find restoration, the weak find strength, doubters get questions answered. Those who don't feel loved meet the great lover. The timid in their faith find courage. The lost are found. The orphaned are adopted into the kingdom. There is nothing that he cannot fix and be the solution because he is the solution to everything in our lives. He is the fullness of God. He came here, brought that presence near to man. And it's amazing to know in a world of constant change, constant changing, constant changing, there is one who has never changed, ever changed. And guess what? If we know him, he lives here. I've said this before, but I want to remind us. God doesn't live in this building during the week. So we have to come out here. If I want to go meet with God, I've got to come out there. And County Road 161, I've got to kind of meet God out there. No. Where does he live? Here. From his fullness, everything that he is can fix everything that is broken in our lives. It can be enough for us in our lives to sustain us if healing doesn't come. 
He is everything that you and I need, and nothing can change Him. So the great depth of our God from His fullness, grace, will always be present in our lives. And so, so it will always be there to meet whatever happens and comes and takes place in our lives. And in my notes here, this, I wrote this this morning. Don't miss this. So it must have been poor important when I wrote that this morning. And this is what I want to, I'll just read it. All of this reality of all of His fullness means that every day of our lives as God's children, we are surrounded by and consumed by the grace of God. Yeah, but what about this situation? Yeah, what about it? We have everything. It's fullness. It's not shallowness. Let me give you a brief picture of this. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And everybody denied it, not me, not me, not me, not me. And Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, no, somebody touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out of me. By the way, when it went out, it just went out. It didn't mean that he had less and he had to go somewhere to get replenished. It just went out and stopped what was going on. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, this is so beautiful, she came trembling and she just fell before him and she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Wouldn't you like to hear that testimony that day? I've gone everywhere trying to get fixed. Nobody can fix me. And I just touched some threads of his garment and power came out and I'm healed. I'm healed! I am healed for from his fullness. And here's the next one. We have all received. We get the gift of God's grace. So from his fullness, we have received. Here's the third thing this morning. The gift of God's grace. So he's greater than all the prophets. The great depth of God is that from his fullness, he has everything that you and I need in our lives. And so the next part of verse 16 we have all. Who is all? Who is this? Who is this? We have all. Everybody who is a Christ follower, everybody who's connected to the church, the whole church gets the gift of God's fullness. Now, let me, let me correct thinking already. You mean, I... Do you know what I've done, Doke? Do you know what I've done in secret? Do you know what I've done in public? Do you know what is some kind of... I don't, whatever, official record or whatever, whatever, whatever. Do you know what I've done? No, I, I don't know it all. But here's what I do know. That if you're a Christ follower, you have been given all of the fullness of God. All of it. For from his fullness, we have received this gift of God's grace. And every member of the church gets it. Not everybody appropriates it. Not everybody walks in it. But it has been given to us. So think about this with me for a moment. All of the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Christ is in us. Therefore, we have been given all of the fullness of God lives inside of us. Regardless of what we have done, if we know Christ, it is all there. So for Christ's Father were to say, Nothing really good's going for me. You know, God's not really doing anything in my life right now. Either we're a liar or we don't get what has happened to us in salvation. We have been given all of the fullness of Christ. Complete, inexhaustible source of grace, source of mercy, source of power, all of that lives in these broken bodies. Jars of clay. 
that reveal this power that is in us and this light that shines out through the cracks that show this, we are not great, He is. Look what He can do with broken clay pots. Look what He can do with brokenness. And the greatest, clearest picture of God's gift to us is His Son. Do I know that God loves me? How do I know? How do I know? Well, before you and I were even born, He sent His Son to die. We didn't live Old Testament time. We live church time. He sent Christ. We live here, 2019. The clearest picture of God's love and gift to you and I is Jesus. The cross, what has been done. God came near us in this life, but God became ours in His death. And his resurrection. So he drew near. So it wasn't enough for him just to come. Watch this. It wasn't enough for him just to come and and wrap himself in skin. The incarnation wasn't enough. The purpose of the incarnation was this. So that here he would hang. So that he would bear our sin. And so John is, is reminding again to you and I, the critical nature of this, that we have been given a gift that is so mind-boggling, and then through faith, all that God is, all the inexhaustible supply of who He is, now resides in bodies that are broken. And it's beautiful what He has done in grace. He gives us the most that He can give, which is Himself. He gives us the most that He can give, which is Himself. And the evidence of how far He was willing to give of Himself is Christ's death on the cross. This beautiful picture of the love. So the gift of God's grace from His fullness, we have all received. It's not, watch this, it's not for those who have it together. It's for those who are broken. And like that woman who for 12 years couldn't find anything to fix her. It's like the man who lived in the tombs who was demon-possessed and he would take rocks and he would cut himself. And Jesus came along and said, Be gone, demons. And when everybody in the town who knew the crazy man who lived out in the tombs came out, this crazy man now was in his says was in his right mind and talking with Jesus. See, that's what he does. That's what he does. So he's greater than the prophets. He is incredibly deep. He's the God of such depth from his fullness. He gives this incredible gift where you and I lack nothing. We lack nothing. And it brings us to point four this morning. We get grace upon grace. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And I'm just telling you right now, I'm about to get excited. Because this is the thing that's going to do it, I hope, for some of us in the room this morning. I hope that you find freedom right now. This phrase, grace upon grace, is amazing. Grace is God's activity, unmerited favor, unmerited love, so we don't earn it. It's just given to us, and it's at work for those who don't deserve it. Grace upon grace. This Greek preposition, upon, is a a Greek word that means it's called anti, A-N-T-I. And it means this. Let me give you three definitions of it real quick. It means one thing that is replaced by another thing. So you got one thing, it's taken away, and you get another thing. Okay? A second definition, uh, uh, the Bauer Arndt Gingrich Greek-English lexicon said this, that anti means grace pours forth ever in new streams. Just constantly pouring forth, constantly pouring forth. Martin Harris and the New International Dictionary of the New Testament said this about this Greek prep- preposition upon 
ante, he said this, it denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were never an interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt, receipt of the next, just continual blessing. So let me simplify it because I see a lot of simple people out there. Let me simplify it. When John says we get grace upon grace, listen to this. We get grace instead of grace is what it means. Grace instead of grace. Grace instead of grace. God knows exactly what we need from His inexhaustible supply of grace this unmerited favor that has been given to us in Christ, He replaces grace with grace, with grace, with grace, with grace, and He's constantly doing that, replacing grace with grace every moment of the day in any and every situation. When you get grace in one situation, when another situation arises, you get grace. It's replaced because every situation needs a different type slant, not type, different aspect of the glory of God's grace. See, the idea and meaning here is simply this, that our lives go through many different situations, highs, lows, mediums, good, bad, ugly, tragic. And since Jesus is the absolute fullness of God, there is an amazing aspect of grace in every one of those where he's replacing grace after grace after grace after grace after grace after grace. It just means this, there is more and 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 more every day of God just exercising grace in our lives. Grace in the place of grace. I'm going to give you grace instead of grace. What did you give me today, God? Grace. What are you going to give me tomorrow, God? Grace. At 1 o'clock, you get grace. 2 o'clock, you get grace. At midnight, you get grace, God replacing grace upon grace, ever constant flow streaming, grace replacing itself, and it's totally inexhaustible. In case you were to say, well, that's just John. Well, Paul said this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ, Philippians 4.19. Jeremiah said it like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new when? Every morning. Every morning they are new. Jeremiah says, great is your faithfulness. There is never a moment. There is never some kind of gap in our lives concerning God's grace to us. I wrote some things down here. There is... Grace that we get one way, and then there's grace that we get in another way. And I wrote some of them down, and it's always enough. When you're young, there's a certain grace that you're given. When you're old, there's a certain grace. In persecution, God gives a certain grace to believers. In places where the gospel is more accepted, there's a certain grace that's there. In joy, God gives a certain grace. In depression, God gives grace. When we're prosperous, God gives grace. When we're poor, God gives a grace. When we're strong, God gives a grace. When we're weak, He gives a grace. When our marriage is strong, there's a grace that's there. When the marriage is struggling, there's a grace that God replaces and gives. When you are married for a long time and a spouse dies, there's a grace in that marriage, and now there's a grace that comes as a widower where God replaces that grace with something else. Watch this. There's not a moment of our lives that God is not giving grace to His children. Not a moment of our lives. Inexhaustible, billions and billions of people, power going out, movement going out, God doing these incredible things, Never exhaust him. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He does not lie. He is absolutely true. In every moment of our lives, the cross screams this if we know him. God at work in our lives, giving his unmerited favor, grace replacing grace in every situation of our lives. When our kids are walking with God, there's a grace. When our kids aren't walking with God, there's a grace. 
that God gives to sustain us. And His grace is always moving. It is never the same. It is dynamic. And His grace is so victorious that it has enough to meet the need of every moment you and I find our lives in. And we must remember we are never alone. But let's be honest. It's real easy to say Christ satisfies everything. It's another thing to live it, right? It's another thing to live it out. And for many, this truth that's in our head, he's enough, he's enough, he's enough, he's enough, he's enough. It's just different to live it out. And all around us, you see Christ followers going after so many things for peace. All the while forgetting what Jesus said. I said these things to you so that in me, you may have peace. In me, you're going to have peace. Now, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. But you need to take heart. I have overcome the world. It's in Him. It's not in the world. It's in Him. So in the world, tribulation. We have to live in the world. So guess what there's going to be? Tribulation. But as you live in tribulation, if you're in Him, He replaces grace after grace after grace with every single tribulation that comes and happens and takes place in our lives. Paul spoke and wrote of this as well. This week, we read this, W4, Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it guards, it guards, it puts up walls, it guards your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then you hear somebody say, well, I've tried to pray. I've tried to immerse myself in the Word. I've tried to make Christ be my hope and my peace, but my problems didn't go away, so I gave up. Anybody relate to that? Pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. God, 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 I believe this, I believe this. And here's what I think's the issue. We have the wrong perspective about grace. I want to tell it. I'll read it in a second, but let me tell it. There's this guy named the Apostle Paul. You ever heard of him? It's pretty amazing. He started churches everywhere. He had something going on in his life. And three times he went to God and he said, God, we take this away. You think Paul prayed passionately? <laughs> Lord, we take this away. Nope. Lord, Lord, take this away. Nope. Live with it. Third time, Jesus, we, we take this away. It's just dominating my life. I, I, I need it gone. My life will be better if it's gone. And God said to Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you hear that? Paul, your life is better off being weak so that my power and grace, replacing grace, would fall upon you. Maybe our issues, men and women in this room today, are the things we can never find freedom from. Is we think that the key to peace is the absence of our problems, not the presence of all sufficient grace in our lives. And I think the answer is the key to anything that you and I face is not the freedom from it. It's embracing the grace of God that comes to us. So this is what it says. So the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And listen how Paul's perspective changed. Before it was like, God, remove it, remove it, remove it, remove it. And then God says, I'm not removing it, but I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you something better than cancer. I know cancer's bad, but I'm going to give you something really great. I'm going to give you my grace that will sustain you in the midst of your cancer. 
And it's going to be sufficient because my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul's perspective changed and he said this, Therefore then I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this. We're mustering up our energy. We're going to seminar, sermon after sermon, tape after tape, book after book, video after video. And we're looking for all this stuff, Jesus plus. Instead of Paul got it, he thought, man, if I could just be free from, from these fleshly things that just dominate my life. And Lord, 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 please free me from this. No, I just want to give you grace. And grace will sustain you. And Paul thought, okay, that's great. I want more of Jesus. And if it means I've got to live with this physical informity, this, this uh, emotional aspect, whatever the case may be, if this is what I have to live, and God says, I'm going to give you something better than freeing you from that. Then Paul said that I'm just going to go, yeah, bring it on. Give me grace. Give me grace. Give me grace. Give me grace. Because in grace, the power of Christ, watch what he says here, rests upon us. Our flesh cannot free us from our depression. Our flesh cannot free us from our addictions. But admitting we're weak and we cannot do it allows God to give a grace that brings a power that frees us. So for the sake of Christ, then, I am content, Paul said, with weaknesses. I'm content with insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Have you heard that today? Have you heard that today, what I just said? Because I'm, just, I'm telling you, either this is true, this is true, or it's not. And let's go home. There's other things to do if this ain't true. If this is not true, let's don't waste our time. But if it's true, it's the most transformative thing that can come to our lives. And some of us know that it's true. We know that this is true, that this grace of God is real. It is powerful. And I believe that we all want to be emotionally and spiritually strong to be free. But it seems, according to Paul, that the power of God is made perfect in weakness, not in me being strong. It's me saying, no, Lord, I can't. But you did. And you can. Remember this week in Philippians 4? I've learned to be content when I'm hungry, when I'm not hungry, when I have a lot, when I don't have a lot. And we have so misquoted verse 13 of Philippians 4, taken it out of context, made it a sports verse. It's a sports verse. It's not a sports verse. I can do all things through Christ. I can become content. I can learn contentment when I have a lot, when I don't have any, when things are going well and they're not going well. I can learn contentment in the midst of cancer. I can learn contentment in the midst of when I don't have any money in the bank. I can learn contentment. How? Because there is a God who's replacing grace after grace after grace after grace, and I can do all things through Christ, who, who, who I'm weak, who strengthens me. Same words that Paul is talking about. Now, we've got to shut this thing down. We're going to come back to it next week. We're just going to stop. This is the first time ever I've stopped, okay? I'll put this. I can, I can put these things together uh, next week. Because I, 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 I think I just need to draw our attention once more here. If you're here today, and you spend so much energy every week, every month, every year trying to be strong and trying to find the power from your strength. Here's what I want to ask you today. And I want to ask it of me as well. How about today we just say, God, I'm just messed up. I can't fix me. I've been trying for years to fix me. I can't, I can't, 
could today be the day that everything changes for us? Could it be the day where it changes? We give up control and we, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live anymore, but Christ who lives in me. Could today be the day that we just say, I'm just weak. And, he's, and we know this. We, we see what the Apostle John said. Grace replacing grace. Not a moment of our day. We're just consumed by it. We're wrapped around it. And just say today and learn like Paul did. Paul found it freeing. Paul thought, my freedom's going to be if God will take this away. If he'll just take this away. And then God spoke to Paul and Paul said, okay, God, when you speak, I love when you speak. And so I'm going to embrace what you speak. And so Paul just tur- turned his whole look li- outlook on his life around to say this. It's not the freedom from problems. It's the all-sufficient grace in the midst of the problems that is absolutely satisfying to the depth of our bo- bones and to our soul. And so here's what I want to ask us. Are we ready to give up being strong? And are we ready to say, I'm just weak and I need one who made me, who lives in me, who is inexhaustible, who gives me grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's what I need. And if you're ready for that, guess who he is? He'll give you a grace in that moment. Right now in this moment, he'll give you a different grace that's needed for the moment to even surrender. So what's it going to be? Does it mean that everything's going to be fixed? In this world, you'll have tribulation, Jesus said. But in me, in the midst of the tribulation, you'll have peace. You'll have peace. My peace. My peace. All right, let's pray.